I think that the ball is very much in Africa's court. One of the things that I tell government in Africa is look, our most powerful commodities are people. Weaponized. That's Agboje Ike Imokode, formerly the group managing director and CEO of Access Bank. What are things that banks are particularly well suited to solve? I used to think that banks would be the basis of that solution. I haven't necessarily changed my mind. We hear the stats from the IFC, for example, that there's this huge multi-hundred billion dollar credit gap in Africa. For 30 years, as a banker, I tried to solve this problem and I couldn't. But as a backer of technology ventures, we solved it. What are we looking at from the founder perspective? Pragmatically, my view is that it's the changing world. Find what plays to your advantage. I think that's our low-hanging fruit. And it's not that easy because if it was, this episode of The Flip is sponsored by Onafreak, formerly MFS Africa. Onafreak is the leading real-time payments network for Africa, which connects over 500 million mobile wallets across over 1,300 cross-border corridors and in over 40 countries across the African continent. Throughout this season, we'll hear from the Onafreak team about their work to create a borderless world. In this episode, we're joined by Nika Nagave, Onafreak's group head of growth, to talk about the opportunity for cross-border transactions across the African continent. We started in 2010, and initially we were focusing on the immediate pain point that we saw in the mobile money industry, which was fragmentation and lack of interoperability across borders between these different mobile money services. And since then, we've played a key role as an ecosystem enabler and orchestrator. Today, if you are a business or a consumer, through a single API connection, you can send money or get paid across the continent through our hub and our network of networks. If you look at migration trends, you see a lot of south-to-south -South migration. And the opportunity in intra-African remittances is quite fruitful. We all who are in this space rely on the data from World Bank. And whilst it's a great resource, it has some certain shortcomings, especially when it comes to the volume of transactions between different African countries. We know that what World Bank reports is only formal remittances, and what in reality happens is five to ten times more than that. Agboje Ike Imokode is one of the most successful business people on the African continent. In 2002, he stepped down as executive director of GT Bank to lead the acquisition of Access Bank which under his 11-year leadership grew into the largest bank in Nigeria and one of the largest banks in Africa. This wide-ranging discussion with the chairman took place during the 2023 UN General Assembly in New York at an event co-hosted by the early-stage VC fund Microtraction, in which we were joined in conversation with Microtraction's founding partner, Kwamina Afool. You've talked about banks as vehicles for economic empowerment. I want to start just with a conversation about in the context of economic empowerment, what are things that banks are particularly well-suited to solve? And then we can talk about the things that they're not well-suited to solve afterwards. So I was very provocative when I was asked to introduce myself. And I said this thing about spent the first half of my life trying to accumulate wealth. So it's very important for us to understand the African demographic and the youth demographic. So the prevailing feeling amongst young people, not just young people now, even when I was young, okay, even the, I think we were probably the last generation to enjoy what I would call good economic governance, okay? And I'm 57, okay? And so that tells you that for something like 35, 40 years, broadly, 
54 African countries have been challenged by poor economic governance at the public sector level. So this does something for the African young man or woman. They feel very frustrated, okay? And they kind of feel, I've got to solve my problems myself. It drives them to be very educated, to be very in certain, on the average, the typical African youth is very ambitious, okay? Uh, could be described as aggressive, okay? You can see them in the classrooms across the world and, and, and so on. And so Africa is like, in a sense, very much like Hong Kong, the New York you know, economy, even if it's not working at the government level, we will solve our own problems. So you have gig, hustle economies, you know, uh, I like to call them the runs economy in Nigeria, where people are just doing things to make sure that they earn and they break this economic ceiling. So that's the context, okay? And probably, you know, for your diaspora, I don't know if I'm hitting the right points. Yeah. It's a lot of money of economic research that I'm, you know, kind of summarizing in a few minutes. So that's the context. Now, it's a great thing to know that if you can find solutions for these people, all right, heavy earners, truly good credit, okay, they will use your services, okay? I used to think that conditioned by the fact that you needed a license to offer basically the solutions, and that license in the time that I got into financial services was a banking license, I used to think that banks would be the basis of that solution. I haven't necessarily changed my mind. If the banks are run in the right way and with the right mindset, okay? So, Think of, and we're just talking financial services, but I think this kind of applies to many things. I like to think about uh, technology opportunities in Africa from this perspective. If you have a great team that can execute on a meaningful solution, they should be able to grow to a million customers in a year. And if they are very strong, they should be able to grow to 10 million customers in five, 10 years. And then the challenge is for some of them, they can go from 10 to 100 million in another 10 years. So you can get a business going from zero to 100 million customers in 20 years. That's kind of like the access bank story we're talking about, okay? And I guess, you know, maybe some of your investments, you know, may actually, you know, um, experience that type of growth. So you talked about credit, though, so maybe we can zoom in a little bit because, you know, I think we hear the stats from the IFC, for example, that there's this huge, you know, multi-hundred billion dollar credit gap in Africa. And if the banks aren't able to or willing to address this credit gap, you know, then you know, smaller players, the venture-backed startups are trying to address that. So can we talk about credit in particular? And then I'll ask for Kwame's perspective from a startup perspective. But why is credit such a hard problem to address in these markets? So typically, countries address the need for credit from actually from a monetary policy standpoint. So it's something that's very top-down, very government-focused, because good credit stimulates economies. But I've told you that we don't have good economic governance. So that's the principal reason why across Africa, uh, credit is very hard to combat. In Nigeria, for example, you have um, a population well over 200 million people. And we've got officially, I think now we've moved from 50,000 mortgages to maybe 100,000 mortgages in the whole country. It then tells you that these are huge opportunities um, to unlock value, okay, if you're thinking about credit. I'll give you an example. If you think about supply chain finance, which is simply you look at a you, you look at a sector. Let's pick something very easy. Let's think about um, MTN. MTN is in the business of 
voice data and a few other things now all right and it's a telecoms company that has a presence uh, across quite a few countries in africa including nigeria and so mtn also has a few competitors but the sector the telecom sector has gone from two percent contribution to gdp now to about 15 percent or 16 percent in over 20 years that's major half a trillion dollar economy so that's that's a lot so i would say that in that sector if you look at the value chain all right the smes in that sector that are providing services to support that sector would at least number some like 200,000 SMEs, a healthy sector, doing well, and so on. What percent of those SMEs do you think have access to credit? Low, right? Yeah. 1%, 2%. Maybe 3%, okay? So you've got well over 90-something thousand of these SMEs, all right, that have will continue to exist, will continue to grow, and they don't have access to credit. Even within, I'm talking, you know, access to 90-day, 180-day type revolving credit. So why can't the bank solve that problem? Because uh, the policy context is very weak. So what typically leapfrogs bad economic policy? Technology. And that's why he used the term, you know, uh, leapfrogging. So for 30 years, as a banker, I tried to solve this problem. I couldn't, okay? But as a backer of technology ventures, we solved it. But to be honest, it wasn't even... We didn't invent anything. We just looked at how India solved their problem. And then we applied the problem to Nigeria. And then we're going to roll it out across Africa. So let me tell you how it works. Okay. Simply put, you create a registry where MTN or the suppliers to MTN, these 90,000 people in this value chain, okay, can register the invoices of work done within the value chain. Okay. And this is digitally registered. Okay. And we verify that this invoice has been performed on, okay? Not accepted, just performed on, okay? And all of this happens in seconds, okay? And so uh, you now want credit, okay? And this um, marketplace, okay, would basically make available to investors, all right? Investors could be you, I, okay? The opportunity to bid for to finance this invoice, okay? And all of this happens in seconds, okay? And then you bid and you win and you're financing this invoice at maybe 16%, okay? And ordinarily, this is uh, an SME that doesn't have access to credit at all. And when they have access to credit, it will probably be financed at 40%, okay? But because of the bidding process, you're bringing down the cost of credit, okay? And then, you know, the account gets credited and uh, when it's due for payment, you get money from MTN and you settle, you know, the investor. So we believe, okay, that this solution in three years' time, we'll probably have least this platform rather. We'll probably have low end, low end, one hundred thousand SMEs. Probably, if we're successful, a million SMEs. Okay, and by the way, we'd have created a new asset class that is almost as safe as you know bank commercial paper. All right, that millions of Africans, including those in the diaspora, can bid on. So this is a kind of, of uh, credit opportunity that is, um, that is coming. That company, uh, which we started with, he, he knows about the company, with an investment in $10 million, now in, you know, valued at about $100 million, uh, two years old, and I think could be a unicorn. So that's an example of a credit yeah. play.
Please do throw out questions. If just a couple of questions, you know, on the other side of uh, Manhattan. There's propositions that, that in the continent countries, there's so much debt crisis. So structurally, there's all this money owed, you know, backed by U.S. currency. And so it would be great to understand the solution, which is very empowering, coming from uh, people within within community having that agency. But how does that juxtapose with the structural issue that so much debt currently exists? What we haven't talked about here, which is structural as well, the, the negative threat is we're going down a cliff, right, with climate change. And the continent is most impacted by the impacts of climate change, right? 15, so all these things have to be compressed. But there is the opportunity side linked to the leapfrogging technologies of the green industrialization, right, such as the cobalt lithium and actually creating the manufacturing but to get that kind of scale of infrastructure that's not at a consumer level that's bringing financial systems to that and so it just would be great to understand changing some of the structural dynamics that exist. let me start from my view on transition just generally okay if you look at poverty and across the world and you define poverty as say 1.2 uh, dollars a day, and so those who are under $1.2 a day in earnings. And uh, the world has done a great job in basically compressing that number to 600 million people across the world. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, 90% of those people are in Africa. Okay. And he just told you that our population numbers in Africa are 1.6 billion, correct? So that's one third of Africa accounts for 90% of the world's extreme poor. Now, if you push that up a little and you go another 500 million people, all right, then you're in the poor to what we call this zone where you, you move from almost middle class to poverty, just depending on, you know, um, how good the government's policies around inflation are. Okay. From a 1.1 billion almost poor people are still a good number, depending on what type of business you're you're giving them. So for instance, if you're giving them uh, water, if you're giving them uh, data, if you're giving them, they'll still use voice communications. So, I mean, there are certain businesses that still make money even if it's, you know, there's a lot of poverty around, around you. So my view about transition generally, okay, is that I've got to make these poor people, uh, I've got to get them out of poverty just the same way as China has done and India has done but India didn't do it with climate issues. When I say didn't do it with climate, they didn't do it respecting climate issues. So it's a good model for me to look at, whether or not you like it, whether or not you're a fan of it, okay? But I'm certainly going to, from a, a survival standpoint, as, you know, look at it, okay? So that's my first, you know, premise, okay? Now, your second is that, nonetheless, there are things that um, uh, commodities and, you know, that seem to be at the heart of, um, a cleaner world. I agree with you. Okay. But um, the notion, for instance, of creating lithium battery manufacturing businesses uh, across Africa um, is very attractive. But India is doing the same thing. Okay. Other Asian countries are doing the same thing. And they have much better uh, economic governance than we do in Africa. So I know for a fact that whilst uh, I would love to have those factories in, in um, Nigeria, and I could work towards that, okay? Perhaps I should 
you know, focus on kind of some of the things that he's talking about, which is that, okay, fine, right? Even if I'm not the lithium battery manufacturer, let me make sure that all the music that is on those mobile phones, right, and on those devices is coming from Africa. Let me make sure that the, the, the content, the sports, the art, the, you know, is art, the, the, you know, the, the fashion and so on. So I think that pragmatically, my view is that it's a changing world, yeah? Find what, you know, plays to your advantage. And I think that Kwamena is spot on in terms of the things that, you know, in Africa are kind of obvious that we should do, all right? And the nice too, like, um, you know, lithium battery parts and so on, fine, you know, if we have geniuses in government, fine. But, you know, for now, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, that's not where I'm betting. We talked when we were in San Francisco last week a little bit more about the gaps in the sort of, you know, cultural industry value chain that need to be built locally as opposed to building, you know, the African TikTok, right? Can you talk a little bit also about, um, you know, in connecting Africans to a global economy, a lot of that is a financial services story as well. You talked a little bit about just accepting payments in dollars and maybe what sorts of things also from an infrastructure perspective can be built to better connect to the global economy in that way and to tap into these global marketplaces. So recently, for example, a lot of African Afrobeat artists were struggling to get the dollars they make from subscription platforms around the world, right? They, they struggled to go to one central point to distribute all their music collect all the dollars and then be able to remit it back and use it. So that's a very simplistic example of limitation that has been fixed recently. So there's now companies that focus purely on distribution. You go to them, you give them your music, they'll put it on all the platforms, they'll collect for you across all the platforms and allow you to kind of receive your funds. Some even have third parties holding the money on their behalf and getting a hold of it is a challenge, right? So generally speaking, I think any tools that make it possibly this, the currency issue is a deep one and i could speak to ike about it for for days um but any platform that allows you to participate in global markets sitting behind your phone or your laptop on the continent for me is super powerful so if you can if you can simply kind of you know spin up a us llc create a bank account and and i'm curious the opportunities for U.S. banks to see themselves banking, you know, it makes geopolitical sense from a preservation of currency perspective, which is another conversation. But U.S. bank kind of, you know, banking global audiences, you make your use case, you create an LLC, spin out a bank account and be able to start receiving money. The more tools like that that exist, I think the, the more integrated, you know, the continent will be with the rest of the world in terms of participation. We invest in a lot of tools like that. We invest in a yeah. lot of companies. We met a startup that came in San Francisco and she just helps African contractors create a US dollar bank account. That's all she does, right? Just simply go online, create a US dollar bank account. They'll keep the money for you and then you decide where they want, you want them to wire it. And that just opens up so many other services that those that workplace wouldn't have access to. Like maybe you can talk from your perspective, I think. There's a lot of institutional barriers, as we just said, to, you know, a Nigerian, for example, participating in the global economy. And there's this issue of, you know, maybe the, the perception of risk from, you know, global economies um, or certain countries of a Nigerian consumer and challenges around KYC and AML and, and things like that. Um, can you share your perspective on how that gets addressed or maybe this this challenge of, you know, the perception of risk of the continent and how 
these these opportunities to better connect people to the global economy can be captured? A lot of the risk premium that is dumped on Africa in particular is essentially the world saying that this is how we are used to perceiving um, the individual. Um, and if you don't conform to it, all right, that means you're more risky. Let me give you an example. So if I don't have a zip code, okay, for some reason in most countries or the equivalent of a zip code, I'm risky. Well, in Africa, we don't have zip codes. Even if I am the richest man, Aliko Dangote doesn't have a zip code. So if, if, you're, if, you're, if your credit score process requires a zip code, all of a sudden, you know, he's not good for credit. Okay. I don't have a passport. Okay. Uh, well, if I want to get a passport in Nigeria, I have to wait three years. Uh, okay, I hear that there are some advanced countries that the wait time is now three years, but you know, um, um, okay, but you know, you've you really got to hustle to get out your passport. So, again, you know, you want me to fill a form, I'm asking for a passport number, and I don't have it, and, and so on. So, I'm just giving you examples where, to be honest, I mean, the risk premium is very exaggerated. But because of the fact that those who have economic power globally um, dictate the rules upon which things work, SWIFT, you know, and payment systems and acceptance into global payment systems and, you know, basically the way the world works. It's, um, and we don't have the kind of voice I'm seeing in Africa, either here or, you know, amongst many other, um, by New York, I'm saying in the UN and so on, you know, and, you know these rules are made. And so we struggle to have to live by those rules. Now, some of the problems are there are there are actually fewer and fewer African banks that are members of the international global payments community. Okay. Thankfully, we saw this coming and as in as Access Bank, that's one of the reasons why we've set up banks across you know, the world. So if you have a bank in the UK that is a that's Access Bank in the UK that is a licensed uh, participant in the UK clearing system. Okay, Access Bank stays in this clearing system. Now, if you're a Nigerian bank, okay, and you're not in that clearing system, okay, you've got to apply to a UK bank, and you may be bigger than the UK bank, by the way, to make your payment. So when you see all these routing business and, and so on, and so you're routing through that bank, a payment. That bank then demands that you show evidence that all your customers have zip codes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if they don't, then of course, I'm going to label your payments in a certain way. So a payment coming from you, all right, is deemed immediately of a higher risk status, you know, than a payment coming from, you know, a country that is more compliant uh, based on global standards. So I'm just giving you this context of, of risk. And then of course, is the fact that from time to time, African nations do get into payment uh, challenges. Um, I mean, Ghana is. Oh, <laughs> it's a, a recent example, okay? And, you know, and you have uh, 10 years of good work messed up, you know, uh, by, by this, uh, a challenge, you know, of this nature. At the end of the day, right, if you really think about the 1.6 billion Africans who are 
basically excluded from payment systems, excluded from ability to just participate as global citizens, it's really unfair because they don't deserve it. And um, the risk attached to them or the risk weighting attached to them is not true. But then it's the hand we are dealt. Short of, I think, maybe the um, perceptions changing here, how does that get changed? Or is that what actually needs to happen? If the perceptions don't change here, you're, you're going to, there's not much you can do unless, of course, you try to, which is why you have the, you know, the arguments of alternative, you know, you know BRICS Bank, mm -hmm. you know, this and that. Mm -hmm. um, but the truth is that the U.S. dollar and then the euro, okay, are still very much embedded in the fabric of our economy. So for those who export oil, um, oil is still going to be sold at price per dollar per barrel for a long time. Okay, you know, just for just for example, um, I think uh, certainly I think cocoa is priced. I don't know if cocoa price like in euro and dollar. Yeah. But I mean, it just shows you how um, how uh, these things work. At the end of the day, right? Uh, Africa will solve its problems when it starts producing in Africa. And uh, one of the wealthiest, you know, um, economic ecosystems or companies in the world is LVMH. Okay, and LVMH is just well, sorry, I take that back. It's not just. But it's, it's brands, okay? If I really think about the power of African content and what you can do if you brand it, okay? Then you start, you know, so we can have, we can have drinks coming from Africa, okay, that have the power of LVMH brands. We can have clothes coming from Africa, made in Africa. You know, you so... So when you, you talked about this uh, influencer, the dance guy, okay? so people watch him and they're looking at what he's wearing. Okay? And what he's wearing is cool and you know, they want to dance like that, they want to look like that. So you know, when we can kind of break whatever constraints there are to making sure that whatever is dancing in is made in Africa, then real money. And that's when real money starts getting made. I mean, the hair, the, the, that's what I think our strength is. And, you know, I might be, I might be talking about hair, clothes and so on, but I'll give you the example of LVMH, the richest man in the world, right? Essentially makes his money by branding these products. We have, I think that's our low hanging fruit. Yeah. And it's not that easy because if it was, I'll be LVMH Africa, yeah. you know, but, um, <laughs> I think that's the option. Yeah, and the cultural element is, is there. This season of The Flip is all about sharing lessons and insights from some of the most experienced and esteemed founders from across the African tech ecosystem. And it's a mission for which we're proud to partner with Norskin22 to share wisdom and insights from the fund's unicorn board as well. We know that advisors and mentorship are an important part of the venture funding process. And throughout this season, we are speaking to and learning from the successful founders, operators, and investors from Norskin22's unicorn board. In this episode, we're joined by the CEO of Flutterwave, Olubenga Agbola, better known as GB, to talk about fundraising. It's really about the Africa opportunity and Africa growth story. We are a 1 billion people continent, as you all know. Average age, 20 to 30, as the numbers say. This is the next billion continent. This is opportunity continent, right? After India, there's another continent that has the mass that we have in Africa beyond, beyond here. 
I think it's really about showing them the opportunity here and the fact that capital can unlock that opportunity if properly deployed, right? That potential is just there, and I think it's very obvious to see. For example, look at remittance numbers in South Africa, the World Bank numbers, they are crazy. You know, the growth is outstanding, right? And the opportunity is there for anyone who can build and scale to be able to do it, to, to, to be able to do it for the right ROI for the right investors as well. The opportunity here can also be linked to the, to the ambition size. What is the size of your ambition? If you're trying to build an infrastructure to do payments in across Africa, that, that, that is bankable. If you're trying to build for just a niche market in one country, maybe you don't need to raise VC, right? It's just a matter of what's your, what's your ambition size? Do you have the track record to prove you can do this at scale? And do you really want to do that scale? And that's the way it works for me. We'll open it up for a few questions and then we'll uh, do some, some food and networking. Unfortunately, we have two questions. Um, the first question is um, regarding the, the the new generation of work, right? I mean, what is your thought about the education of people? Right? I mean, delivering, you know, delivering new shapes and formats of work to the you know to the world, you know, um, I think this is a very important pillar. So, I mean, your thought on this? Second question was um, about the informal market. Right, I mean, form, informal markets, you know, big part of Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, has up to about 50% informal markets, which is unbanked from, but maybe even, not even paying taxes. So what is your thought of the interaction between the digital ecosystem, the data reaching the informal markets, and the pressures that is probably increasing from the government point of view to formalize more informal markets? And what are your thoughts about the opportunities? Let me start with your second question first. So, um, I'll use Rwanda as an example. The first time I visited Rwanda, 2006, 2007, um, I went to, I went because of uh, health philanthropy. And we had, I was trying to raise money across Africa for the Global Fund. And um, so I went to a, a health center and I noticed in the health center that there was, first of all, there's a computer in every health center and um, I saw people come with a card, you know, with something on a card and they would come and then they would go into this database. And with that database, you could basically be treated in any health center you're in Rwanda that you went to. This database lends itself to all kinds of fantastic things. Okay. Now, in their case, um, it's more of a traditional um, database stored um, with you know, more uh, traditional um, systems. So autom automated, but not digital. Now, a small country in terms of population, small in terms of um, physical uh, geography and so on. And therefore you can solve for identity that way. Yeah. But I think what India has done, solving for identity digitally in 15 years, yeah. uh, and you know, basically connecting you know, well over a billion people um, by basically creating a fundamental stack, a primary stack that has your name, that has, I think, name, sex, address, 
biometric five things, just five things. Yeah. And with that, um, India is India is on the cusp of creating the new world in terms of data. Are there conversations between leadership and government to try to get one currency in Africa? And if so, what what are the pros and cons for the people if there was one currency? Great question. There are. I doubt very much if uh, African countries are ready to trade their sovereignty for a currency because it's not going to offer them the kind of advantage that's going to make uh, that sacrifice worth it. Uh, so I think the what is going to happen, though, is that uh, Kwamena was speaking about stable coins and digital currencies being an alternative. So I, I would um, go down the route if I was if I had that type of policy power of trying to create one, two or three trusted digital currencies that could be the payment method for cross-border trade. Okay. Now there is a very powerful organization in Africa called the Afrexit. And it's growing in power because it's sensibly run and their solutions are, are quite interesting. So they've been pushing for their, their mandate is, you know, trade. Okay, intra-African and uh, Africa and other continental, uh, another continent trade with other continents. So they are they are advocating that okay, fine, let's have trade systems that um, um, are run based on some notion of a universal currency that pairs to dollar, euro, and so on. I think that's going to work. Um, uh, I think that's going to work, certainly. So I, I'm, I'm not seeing one currency, but certainly I'm seeing currency pairs uh, for specific purposes. Um, trade on platforms like the platform I told you about, the, uh, you know, that platform. Okay, you, you get it, you know, so, right. Yeah, so that kind of thing, yes. Yeah. Do, you have a, do you have a perspective? Kwamena talked a lot about stable coins, for example. Do you have a perspective on the role that they'll play, I think, certainly in a market like Nigeria, we're seeing a lot of organic adoption of it for purposes of, you know, protection against devaluation or access to, you know, USDC pairings. What, what do you think about that? The primary purpose for, I think, okay, for um, crypto assets in Africa, which is not even inconsistent with the notion actually of, of, of crypto assets being uh, a safety haven for those who don't trust government. Okay, um, it's inflation. You remember I told you about this inflation worry and okay, mm -hmm. how do I? Okay, so that I think is the primary driver. And then the secondary one is that how can I make a payment if I'm not right. a member of the global payment system? Those are the two things. Those two things, mind you, are powerful enough to sustain that type of solution. Um, so because the problems in Africa are very chronic. That is why the adoption rates for some of these crypto assets is so high, even despite the turbulence we find, you know, in, in the crypto world in terms of um, uh, falling assets. So I, I think ironically, you're going to find that the um, uh, crypto or digital asset technology probably makes most sense for Africa the way it's been designed, okay? And that um, 
the unfortunate thing is that the technology was not birthed in in africa i wish it was right. you know yeah. those are the kind of things that will shift you know this whole nature of nature notion of producing things that you know but it doesn't matter we can still you know use it or we can still um bring it so what i i one of the investments that you know we've been talking about is and uh, microtraction is very much uh one of the more knowledgeable people or the firm firms of this situation in africa is how we can utilize um blockchain and related knowledge okay to solve uh africa's problems so clearly clearly the digital id all right stack clearly india is going to use blockchain technology in fact they've started okay and clearly all right they are going to use blockchain technology for that alternative currency or it could even be um the lack that is on it okay so um my my what i'm looking at actually is this is it possible that maybe working with something like the afrexim or you know uh, governments that get it okay to create a um, link to the digital uh, id all right some settlement system this is what india is doing by the way okay that allows everybody everybody okay settle their transaction because they are a member of or they have this digital id okay and the truth of the matter is that if it's done and done properly, then you might have that alternative African currency, single currency, because it's just then simply switching everybody onto that single platform. Mm -hmm. um, it's a great conversation we're having because these are things that um, we are seeing that, you know, we're talking about, we're actually doing, but this conversation has put a great urgency to my mind around this issue. And maybe a way to address some of the perceived risk challenges that we talked about as well. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a way to ask a question. Please. You know, I think what you talked about is obviously fascinating because you have a pretty wide perspective on complex sectors. Um, and then I, I love your vision for um, some of the ecosystems you're trying to build. As I listen to all this, it raises all sorts of excited questions in my mind. I'm sure some of which you think about all the time. But it's, it seems like, and, and that's what I see in, in our African countries as well, is a lot of people are, um, the successful entrepreneurs essentially have learned to run you know, between the drops because it's always raining. Sometimes it rains drops, sometimes it rains stones, but you have to deal with the environment, as you say. There is one main actor who uh, defines often this environment, and it's, it's the state. And it runs from bad government to predatory government. Now, maybe tomorrow's youth will be able to uh, have a greater say in governments, and, and uh, yeah, there will be a change in that environment. But, as successful entrepreneurs who have built businesses in Africa, you, you well know as you grow these businesses, you start to you know, bump against these constraints more directly. So 
these kids who are growing tomorrow's businesses, some of these businesses will hopefully grow and become enormous businesses, they will face some of the challenges you've probably faced, which is, okay, now I'm facing uh, structural constraints to my business and to the impact my business can have on society because of the environment that I have, both for attracting capital, for um, protecting capital, uh, and, and so on. So I just wonder how you think about this and so what advice you give to as to the companies they invest in, what they have to do to contend with that environment. Because everybody that I've talked to that gets interested in Africa, the question in my view that stops them from investing is trust in uh, business uh, dispute resolution and trust in infrastructure. When I first visited Shanghai, and they showed me Shanghai 30 years ago. And I said to myself, 30 years ago, Shanghai looked worse than Lagos. 30 years ago. Now, I'm not saying that wealth-wise and capacity-wise, okay, uh, its people didn't have as much potential or even more than the people of Lagos. But certainly in terms of infrastructure, what I could see and what I know in terms of dispute resolution and so on, they were way, way, way behind where Lagos was 30 odd years ago, or maybe 40 years ago. And today, which, I mean, my first visit to Shanghai was that, what, how, okay? And I just raised that simply because this is what is possible. So can it change? Certainly it can change. The next question I ask is that, do, Africans have the capacity to change. Um, and I, 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 I'm clear it's not an IQ issue, okay? Um, so it could be cultural, it could be historical. There could be certain things that prevent leadership from the best leaders from running basically the things that need to be run properly in Africa. So. I've kind of focused my mind from a philanthropy standpoint for, you know, to make a long time bet on trying to get more of the type of people who are African in this room in government than we have today. All right. And uh, I believe very strongly that if that equation changes, we're going to go back to um, the scenario that where actually 50 years ago, Lagos was more developed than most Asian countries with much greater potential, much greater economic power. And that was the case, better run and so on, because the people who were in government were the best, you know, of the best, you know, in the Western Nigeria, as far as Africa was concerned, or even the world. Okay. So, um, but then that's, that's all well and good from a very long-term uh, development standpoint. For the investor today, they're like, okay, fine, I hear you. When you get there, call us. Okay. The ball is very much in Africa's court. Uh, I'm saying, you know, uh, and that's why I spoke about this economic governance thing, because everybody has the opportunity to put their investment dollars anywhere, you know, so it doesn't have to be Africa. And if it's so painful investing in Africa, then, you know, it's either you're going to have to make it less painful or you're going to make the returns much, much higher than they are, you know, today.
so infrastructure, let me give you an instance. So if you come to Lagos, you will see a project that to connect metropolitan Lagos through a series of monorails and, you know, which will work. Okay. And when I say it will work, it's working in many countries across the world. But it's taking us 30 years or 40 years, you know, to connect what's in Shanghai, maybe when they started it, took five years. So it comes to this issue of execution. And um, if investors see an execution capability that is proven in whatever way, okay, they will back. Okay. If you invested in Nigerian GSM telecoms, all right, your return would not be very different from if you were Napsus investing in Tencent. Simple. At scale, you would have become extremely wealthy at scale if you'd invested in African telecoms at the time that these GSM companies, you know, rolled out. Okay. If I put that type of investment opportunity in front of this room today, you would invest. We have the execution capability to bring it to market at scale, hyperscale, despite the challenges. And from an investor or investing mindset, I think you should look for those opportunities. The broad technology investment case, okay, is everywhere it's hit and miss, and everywhere in the world is hit and miss, okay. Um, in the more advanced countries, the miss is not as a result of government policy. In Africa, it's more exaggerated because of the things you're talking about. But then the way I, I like to invest in Africa is that I look for ecosystems that kind of shield you from what you've described, shield you from the lack of infrastructure, shield you from the vagaries of policy, make my bets within that. That's also happened in India, by the way, and even in, in certain Asian countries. So um, what is going to happen is Africa is beginning to sort out itself from a technology standpoint recognizing that to move from success which is you have a you have 1 million users okay i didn't say 1 million customers 1 million users okay when you get to 1 million users i think most um most young entrepreneurs would have done a hell of a lot of work to get to 1 million users of anything probably using technology okay what people are beginning to understand is that you need ecosystems to take you to 10, all right? And then you need very powerful ecosystems to take you to hyperscale, which is 100. The notion of corporate venturing and um, partnerships and collaborations is becoming very key. Because of Microtraction's knowledge of uh, the technology space and, you know, um, the African space, I think that they have early signs of ecosystem plays, et cetera. And maybe what we're maybe one of the things that one of the things of value, okay, to investors here would be how do you connect them with these type of plays? And how do you package your investors in such a way that the sponsors of these plays are willing to let them in to these opportunities? I think that is going to be a very, very powerful proposition if you can get that to work. Amen. <laughs> Should we leave it? I think we should leave it there, yeah? Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you, Mr. Akboje. Thank you, Kwamena. Thank you to all of you.